The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Last week, Pastor Phils spoke on holy ground and who God is. I think the overall theme that came to my mind as I listened to it again and was take off your sandals. Take off your sandals. I have the pleasure and I suppose the burden in some sense of trying to explain holiness and why we need to take our sandals off our feet. So when we're talking about holiness in the truest sense of the word, we can only be talking about one thing, God. For apart from God, anything else becomes a feeble attempt to make something holy which is not. Nor can it be, unless. And we'll find out what that unless is in a bit. This morning, I'm going to attempt to explain to you something that is actually unexplainable and to a degree incomprehensible. I'm going to try and help us begin to wrap our minds around something that is sinless. The key word in that phrase, in addition to sinless, was attempt. We'll never fully get our minds wrapped around this. You're not going to walk out of here today and go, got it. Man, that was excellent. Now I got it. It won't happen. We can only examine God from his holiness from our sinful position. We're going to talk about what is holy and what isn't. But before we do this, let me ask our God to use his Holy Spirit to start the process of teaching us. is that the subject matter we are talking about is incomprehensible because it's you and we cannot get our minds wrapped around you and your holiness. We're only able to have a foretaste. So thank you for this foretaste. Thank you that you are indeed holy. Cause us, Lord, to believe that, to trust in that, to rest in that. Because you are indeed holy. These things I pray in your son's name, who is holy indeed. Amen. Well, can we know holiness and to what can he be compared? Of all of God's attributes, holiness must be at the pinnacle. Some other attributes that belong to God would be his infinitude, his immensity, his goodness, his justice. And by the way, (laughs) we like justice because we think about God, this is who you need to show justice to. We want that, don't, don't we? We want that. 
sadly, our motivation is often wrong. His mercy. Another attribute we think much about. A little different on this one. God, be merciful to me. We don't often apply his, or even want his mercy applied to others. We want it applied to us, though. We're quick to say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. His grace. His omnipresence. His immenseness. His holiness, which we're going to look at. His perfection. His self-existence. His transcendence. His eternalness. His omnipotence, his immutability or unchanging, his omniscience, his wisdom, his sovereignty, his faithfulness, and his love. And these are just some of them which I wrote down. I think the list could easily be much longer. God's holiness must be set apart and above all the others. A song which Moses and Israel would sing is found in Exodus 15, 11. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And by the way, this was a song. And often, you know, being a musician and leading music periodically, I kind of think, man, I'd like to have heard the tune on that. Was it simple? Was it something? How did they sing it? Did they, uh, were they, God, I mean, were were they in tears? Were they smiling? I'm, I'm sure they were smiling. Were they weeping? How did they sing that? Because I want to sing it like that with the same emotion. The same truths is why. How awesome is God in doing glorious deeds and wonders. And these people, by the way, literally saw God's glorious deeds going on as they came out of Egypt. Yet they still, they still wouldn't truly believe. After everything that they would see, none of them would enter in to the promised land. Just a few. Job 15, 15 says, Behold, and by the way, this is one of Job's friends. Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. I have to ask, why? Why doesn't God trust in his holy ones? Doesn't he trust us? We're sinful creatures. We come up short. In this text, notice too, the heavens even come up short in his sight. Of Job's friends, this guy had some pretty good insight into the holiness of God. Another one of Job's friends says this in Job 25, 5 and 6. Another, another one says this. Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot, and the son of man, who is a worm. We have a habit of thinking pretty highly of ourselves. I know I do. I think I'm a pretty good guy. I was joking with somebody the other day, so yeah, we're good people. You've said that maybe about, oh, they're good people. We're good people. I'm good people. We say that about ourselves so easily. And I know I was kind of jesting when I said that. 
But it's true. We think we're actually pretty good people in down inside. And you may be sitting there thinking, well, before I was even saved, I was actually a pretty good guy. I, it's not like I was out dealing drugs, getting arrested, prostitute. That, I, that wasn't me. We have a pretty high view of ourselves. Yet, Job's friends, as much bad counsel as they had offered, had pretty good insight into the holiness of God. They recognized that once we consider the holiness of God and compare his holiness to man, the only way to describe man is they are like maggots and worms. And I thought I was a pretty good guy. Nope, you're a maggot and a worm. Nothing compares to God's holiness, nothing. Great, God is holy, I'm there, I agree. But why is this important? Why is this helpful for us to know? And that's a fair question. Why is learning about God's holiness so important for us? Proverbs 9.10, and I think here's the answer. Listen to this, Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord, this is a verse you guys know, we know this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. That Hebrew word for insight is bine, and it usually refers to the wisdom of the Lord and our response to his instruction. In other words, what are we going to do with it? We know it. Now what are we going to do with it? Because we need insight. This is where the insight comes in. So to answer the question, why do we want God's insight? So we can change and be responsive to God's wisdom, God's instruction. Or we could just sit there and sit here and say, wow, that was a really good exercise. We learned a lot about holiness. Sounds good. I agree. God is holy. Amen. Let's go home. But we don't want that. Do we? Do you want that? But we need to be changing. We are an ever-changing people that belong to Christ. So to, know, so to know the Holy One is to have insight into God. Do you know that he desires to give you his insight more than you desire to have it? How is God holy? I'd like to be able to accurately explain God's holiness to you, and for that matter, even be able to explain to myself with clarity, but I cannot. Rather, it would be easier for me to explain the antithesis or the opposite of God's pure holiness. So as I've thought a lot about this, I think it would be far easier for me to explain unholiness. Why? As a sinful people, this is what we can relate to. Because we are, by nature, an unholy people. Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, who were by nature children of wrath... Prior to conversion, prior to our conversion, we were by nature children of wrath. We hated God. We despised his name. We could have cared less that he is holy. We could care less about his holiness. That's the nature of wrath that we once possessed. That's for those of you who believe. But God has given us a new nature. Do we still sin? You bet. However, we no longer have that old nature. We have the new nature in Christ. We're still sinners, but with a new nature 
and now the ability to not be enslaved by that sin. A.W. Tozer explains God's holiness this way, quote, We cannot explain how white or pure God is when we have no comprehension of purity ourselves. Our version of white is dingy white at best, end quote. Isaiah had a glimpse of how truly unholy he was, along with all the other people of his day, when he found himself in the presence of the Lord. Take your Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6. Take a look at verse 5. We're going to just take a look at that one verse briefly. Isaiah 6, 5. Isaiah writes this. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah recognized what he was standing in front of, a God of pure holiness. The Apostle John, in his vision contained within the book of Revelation, tells us, and we already took a peek at that in Revelation 4, but Revelation 15, 4, it says this, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are sovereign, just, loving, merciful. What's he say? For you alone are holy. That's the word that John hones in on. That's, you alone have a, wow, really big throne. That's, that's awesome. Wow, you alone have, are, are full, of, uh, full of righteous. No, you alone are holy. This is what John sees. When we begin to understand God's holiness and how vastly different he is compared to us, we fear. Godly fear stirs our hearts to glorify the Lord. In other words, we see him for who he is and what he is. Pure holiness, unstained by anything that does not bring him glory. Something our minds cannot get around. So we can begin to recognize God's holiness. We can get a glimpse but we cannot get our minds wrapped around it. We come up short because of our sinfulness, because of our unholiness, because of the vast difference between God and us. And by the way, I'm going to go just off script here, just for off notes for a minute. You want to you want to learn how unholy and rather how much of a sinner you are. Start with God's holiness. Start with his attributes. When, when I do uh, home Bible studies at home with different folks in our congregation, different couples and stuff, and men, um, I always, we're, we're racing to God's attributes. I want to learn God's attributes. Why? Because it tells me who I am. When I can know who God is, then I, I'm easy. I'm easy to figure out. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. I'm a sinner. When I can learn about God. That's why I love studying his attributes. And there are some great books out there about the attributes of God. Back to notes. (laughs) In our pre-glorified condition, we, if left to ourselves, can never be holy. Yet we find in scripture that we are called to be holy. 1 Peter 1.15 says this, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, anastrophe, conversation, your way of life. What does it mean? Be holy in your way of life. What? It's everything that you do. Be holy 
in your conversation, when you walk out the door, when you came in this morning, when you go home, when you're at work, be holy in all of your way of life. And I would challenge you to start with your conversation. Peter is citing, actually, from Leviticus 11.44, which says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica in chapter 4, verse 7. He says this, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So we find it an imperative in the Old and New Testament that we should be holy. We're called by his holiness to be holy. It's almost kind of a, seems like a play on words. But once we begin to wrap our mind around it, that, that makes sense. In fact, that's the only way he could possibly call us to be holy is that he himself has got to be holy. If he were unholy in some fashion, he could never demand or cause us to be holy because he would be unholy. But that is absolutely not true. Because he's pure holiness, we're able to become pure holy as well. This imperative or an imperative literally means you need to be this way. This is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Another example of imperative would be we are called to love one another. That's an imperative. It's not a suggestion. Eh, you really should love one. No, we're called to love one another. Be holy. These are imperatives. So what are you doing to be more holy in your conduct. Listen to the text of scripture that you're probably very familiar with concerning the holiness of God, and you should already be in Isaiah chapter 6. Start at the beginning of this chapter, verses 1 through 7. I heard somebody once say, this is a chapter, or this beginning text really preaches itself. You just don't have to really do a whole lot. You just read it, and it's just unbelievable, quite frankly. And that is true. Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. In the, key, in the year that King Uzziah died. And I'm sorry, I've got to stop right there for just a minute. Did you ever read something in Scripture and wonder, why is that there? What, what, why is that important? Okay, the year that King Uzziah died. What, what does that mean for me? The question is not what it means for you, but what's it mean to the people who Isaiah is writing to? For a, I'm going to tell you about the King Uzziah just a little bit, give you a little snapshot. And you'll see why this is important for, Uzziah to, or for, the, for Isaiah to write this down about King Uzziah. For a period of time, King Uzziah was a good king. During the period of Uzziah's reign, the nation prospered. The desert areas were reclaimed by water conservation. Jerusalem's walls were reconstructed, towers were added, and engines of war were mounted at strategic points. In other words, he knew how to take the outside of the wall at different key points and how to lob things over the wall and destroy enemies that were trying to attack Jerusalem. A large army was also maintained. The nation's prosperity under King Uzziah was considered to have been a result of the king's fidelity to Yahweh or to God. He loved the Lord. Isaiah starts this text of insight regarding King Uzziah for comfort, comfort for the people of Judah. His death would have likely been devastating to Judah. As you might recall, King Uzziah was also the king who wanted to burn incense. You guys remember that story? 81 priests, the high priest and then 80 more of them, went to the temple to stop him. 
you remember the story. This is not for you, king. This is not for you to do. And, And by the way, you also know what happened to him. Leprosy broke out. And he never recovered from that leprosy. Besides, but despite this, he was still considered overall to be a good king. When he died, hopes were crushed. But God comforts his people with Isaiah's vision. The text here in Isaiah offers us comfort too. For what he writes about should stir our hearts. Back to the text. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called, or in other words, proclaimed or, or to praise the excellence of God. One called to the, another and said, I'm going to come up short in this, by the way. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Literally, what they were saying, holy, holier, and holiest. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, this is right where I belong. Yeah, I'm in the middle. No, he doesn't say that, does he? Look at verse 5. And I said, whoa. Literally, misery is me, for I am lost. Dama, silenced. He couldn't hardly speak. Misery is me. I am silenced. This is what God's holiness does to people. With just a glimpse of God's holiness, it closes the mouth. The Apostle John understood this silenced feeling Feeling In Revelation 1.17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Nikros, without life, dead. Not a little dead, dead. He, that's how he fell. That's how he felt. You know the setting. John was taken up into a vision. Here he is gazing up into heaven. And John has such a difficult time in talking about it with any accurate description. With the Apostle John, you're going to hear the word, like, homios, or similar. Go back to verse 12 in Revelation 1. So Revelation 1, verse 12. Listen to this. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool. Like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a fire or in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Pretty vague description. I mean, really, because it was nothing but likes. It was like this. I, I, I can't describe it accurately, but it's, I'm, I'm going to write it down so people can understand the best we can. It's, it was like this. I love his response, because that's really what matters for our point this morning. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Necro's dead. 
Do you see a pattern here? Look at God and die. Why? Because of his holiness. Verse 5 continues back in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I, I, I don't know if Isaiah was physically speaking that or not, you know, or he was thinking this or not. It says silence, so perhaps it was just this is what was flowing through his mind. But he certainly, certainly recognized he had a problem. And by the way, does your Bible have an exclamation point at the end of that verse? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's almost as if he's saying, my eyes totally blew it. They looked at the King, the Lord of hosts. My eyes have looked upon his holiness. Why would I possibly do that? I have unclean lips. And the people I hang out with have unclean lips. I'm looking upon that which is completely different than me, to which I cannot relate. I'm dead. Why? Because Isaiah has recognized he has seen the judge of his soul. Isaiah has a problem. He's in trouble. He is looking at the face of the king of all kings. Could there be anything more holy or awe? full than this. He is a sinner and he's guilty. But more than that, he is standing in front of a holy God with whom, if left to himself, he cannot relate. He doesn't get it. He can't get it. Why? Because he is unholy. He's standing, looking at the king, looking at the Lord with unholy eyes and unholy lips. And a bunch of people he hangs out with are unholy. He's in trouble, and he knows it. The band Mercy Me recorded a song years ago titled, I Can Only Imagine. I like the song, by the way. The lyrics say this, Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence to my knees? Will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. Could we let the Bible give them a little insight? If we're anything like anyone else who has was in the same position, we will fall dead. Nikros. Thankfully, and as we are seeing the difference here between God's holiness and us, the passage continues in Isaiah. (laughs) Thankfully, the passage continues in Isaiah. It reminds me of Ephesians. You know who I'm gonna, what I'm going to say, Ephesians. But God, but God. Thank you, Lord, for but God's in Scripture. Verse 6 says this, then, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. That was a close one. My eyes looked at pure holiness. I was almost annihilated. But he touched my lips. The Savior touched my lips. 
Well, we can read all about God's holiness. We can hear about God's holiness from other people as they attempt to explain it. But better than all this, I want to give you three ways on how God's holiness is manifested in Scripture for us to see. And to do this, I'm going to borrow Arthur Pink's same three points and expound on them. The first one, God's holiness is manifested in his works. In his works. Isaiah 140, or I'm sorry, Psalm 145, 17 says this, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. What is it for the Lord to be righteous in all his ways? Everything he does is correct and perfect. Someone might say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about Adam and Eve? They were sinful and God created them. I actually posed that question when I was a teenager some things you never forget in life. Some mistakes you never forget in life. I posed that question to one of the elders uh, at a church I was going to. I didn't know the answer to this. And I, I don't think, I, I, don't, I thought at the time he wasn't going to either. It was kind of like one of those, let's stump the elder questions. Um, it, it didn't really work. Just, just so you know, that didn't work. <laughs> but what about Adam and Eve? They were sinful and God created them. Did you know that God made them perfect? It wasn't until they, and they alone, entertained the thought of sin that they fell. We might even consider the rest of creation and its perfection. Remember what Job's last friend said in Job 25? Even your works are not holy like you are. Genesis 1-3. This is Genesis chapter 1, not Genesis chapter 3. This is Genesis chapter 1. In other words, before the fall. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Verse 4. And God saw the light was good. Verse 10. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. You know where I'm going with this, right? Verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds. And and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Genesis 1.18, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Verse 21, so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 25, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kind and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Genesis chapter one, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. When God makes things, it's good and holy. His holiness is the foundation by which he relates all things. Even the fallen angels and Satan were created by God's goodness and holiness. These fallen angels made their decision to try and lift themselves above God. We often may think about Satan's desire to be like God and may think, How foolish it is for him to think that he wanted to be or could even try to be like God. But we do the same thing. We even as believers on the Lord Jesus Christ desire to lift ourselves above God. 
We'd never want to say that out loud. But that's what we do. That's what we do when we assume or try to assume God's role in our lives. And this is what I believe to be the root of all sin. We want to be God. We would never say it out loud, but if we were honest. Number one was God's holiness is manifested in his works. Number two, God's holiness is manifested in his law. Romans 7, verses 7 through 12 says this. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came in, sin came alive and I died. Paul recognized his sinfulness, sinfulness through the law. How did he recognize it? Because he saw God's holiness in the Lord's perfect law. And he knew he could never keep it. That happened actually in, in the book of Acts as well. Remember when they were the, 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 Corinthian, or the believers up in, up, in, uh, up in Greece were wondering, hey, we're not Jews, but how do we keep the law? And they said, well, they need to keep it because that's what Moses said. And they're going, whoa, wait a minute. And there was a big meeting in, in Jerusalem with Peter and other folks. They knew that, hey, we've come up short on this. We, we haven't even been able to keep it. What makes us think that they can keep it? It's not going to happen. Well, Paul recognized his sinfulness through the law. And how did he recognize it? Because he saw God's holiness in the Lord's perfect law. Do you see Paul's compare and contrast here? He and we need the law to show us our unholiness. To show us our unholiness. Verse 10. The very commandment, I'm in Romans chapter 7 still. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it, killed me. Listen to Paul's conclusion, verse 12. Here we go. Here's his conclusion. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Notice the theme that Paul hits on. The Lord is holy. His commandment is holy. Paul says the law is holy. God is holy. God's co- God commands, his commandments are holy Righteous and good. Who is unholy apart from Christ? Every single person sitting here this morning. We, like Isaiah, are in trouble. We stand in the presence of a holy God and we're in trouble. We know it. We look into the presence of a holy God and we know that he knows it. Was well, a former detective, I've interviewed many people. I have talked with people about their crimes that I knew they committed. I knew they committed. When they would look back at me, I could see in in their face that they knew I knew they were guilty. It's a sinking place to be. When I was little, my mom was very good at discerning this in me too. (laughs) Look at my face. And by the way, I, I wrote a note in there, thankfully. I'm thankful for that. And a lot of you guys knew my mom. I'm thankful that she could read me like a book and knew I was guilty. I won't cite you any examples. There is no hope apart from Christ. This apart from Christ is our standing before God. Guilty. 
the judge has said guilty. And there ain't no court of appeals that's going to overturn this one. It's done. Number one, was God's holiness is manifested in his works. Number two, was God's holiness is manifested in his law. And the last one, God's holiness is manifested at the cross. The cross is the ultimate example of the manifestation of God's holiness. The cross represents everything that is unholy or that which is sinful, that which is not holy. And it's a clear picture of how God views sin. Remember, and this is important for us to keep in mind, God never forgives sin. He only forgives the sinner. He only forgives the sinner. This is because of his holiness. And this is our greatest need, forgiveness by God. 17th century Puritan Stephen Charnock said this about the holiness of God and the unholiness of sin. Not all the vials of judgment that have or shall be poured out upon the wicked world, nor the flaming furnace of a sinner's conscience, nor the irreversible sentence pronounced against the rebellious demons, nor the groans of the damned creatures give such a demonstration of God's hatred of sin as the wrath of God let loose upon his son. Never, and I continue with the quote, never did divine holiness appear more beautiful and lovely than at the time our Savior's countenance was most marred in the midst of his drying, dying groans. This he himself acknowledges in Psalm 22, when God had turned his smiling face from him and thrust his sharp knife into his heart, which forced that terrible cry from him, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He adores this perfection. Then Charnock goes on to quote from Psalm 22. And listen for what the writer of this text concludes. Psalm 22, 1 through 3. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. Yet, but God, yet, You are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. There is a song which states, Holiness, holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what I need. Holiness is exactly what Christ delivers. He delivers us from the pangs of spiritual death and causes us to be seen by the judge as holy. That's good news. We don't stand such as Isaiah did, for that brief time, scared and terrified. Why did my eyes do this? Why did I look upon him who is holy? He looks upon us in love as he looked upon his son. He sees us as he sees his son who is seated beside him. And he says to the believer, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Why? I'm unholy. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you are not unholy. God sees you positionally as holy because he sees you through the lens of perfection, because he sees you while he looks through his son, Jesus Christ. You're not sinless, but you are holy. 
Here's the imperative as a result of the holiness in which you are equipped. In other words, as a result of that, positionally being holy before God, because you're saved, here's what we need to be doing. Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. There's the position, holy and beloved. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What a wonderful Savior we have. We are positionally holy before the Lord, and we are fully equipped for his service That's good news. This morning, I've only been addressing those of you who have placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Presuming you have done that, as a believer, you have and understand the good news. As God looks upon you through the lens of his sons when you die, he will say to you, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. To the rest of you who have never trusted Christ as your savior, none of my address this morning applies to you. You will, however, stand before the righteous judge. He will not say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. No, this will not be said. He will say something quite different to you. In essence, what he will say is this, and it's found in Matthew 25. You wicked servant, depart from me. I never knew you. Be cast into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I want you to have a clear understanding of exactly what this weeping and gnashing of teeth is. Notice the outer darkness of judgment is accompanied by weeping and gnashing of teeth. The weeping describes an inner pain of the heart, mind, and soul. The word in the original denotes a bewailing or lamentation by beating the breast in an expression of immense sorrow. The gnashing of teeth describes an outward pain of the body. Taken together, The weeping and gnashing of teeth says hell is a place of indescribable spiritual agony and unending physical pain. The outer darkness is a place of anguish, heartache, grief, and unspeakable suffering. Such will be the lot of you who have rejected Christ. I love you guys. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Why won't you trust him today? What's holding you back? For us who have trusted Christ as our Savior, we can rejoice. Isaiah's eyes looked upon someone who pierced his soul. The judge 
is on the throne. He is clothed in his holiness. And with that holiness, God will rightly judge all people, every single person. What will he say to you? What will he say? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the holy judge. Thank you for your holiness. This, uh, my mind goes to, indeed, it is the pinnacle of all of your attributes. What an amazing thing to be able to even approach your holiness. Isaiah was scared to death, literally. And yet, and yet, you offered a way by which he could stand before you and have his sins atoned for. And you have done that for many here this morning. Our sins are atoned for. Thank you for the Savior. Thank you that he died upon the cross for those who would believe. These things I pray in your son's name. Amen.